So this is the Rick Sanchez podcast, and I'm going to ask you a question. What happens when smart goes up against stupid? I'm not particularly a huge fan of Pete Buttigieg because of his like whole CIA connections and stuff. But son of a bitch, he took on a cable news host the other day. And by the time he was done, as Trump would say, there was blood everywhere. I mean, you're going to... This is this this needs to be drilled down on and taken apart, and that's what we're going to do. Also, do you know how much money you and I gave to Moderna from our own hard work so that they could do vaccine research? Look, I get it. This is an important task, right? $2.5 billion, right? Did I get that right? Yeah, $2.5 billion. Now, here's the next question. How much of it was pocketed and by whom? A billion. A billion dollars. Who pocketed a billion dollars of that? This is sick. Talk about corporate greed and corruption. We're going to break this down for you as well. And Steve Bannon, who's in a shitload of trouble these days, is going after Joe Rogan. Yeah, that Joe Rogan. This is going to get nasty. But I want to start with the craziness that is the January 6th committee. Right? Which is interesting. But as uh, you watch these hearings, especially as a Latino... Can I tell you something? As a Latino, it's not shocking. This is not shocking to me, you know? And let me tell you why. The fact that Trump wanted to nullify an election, it's not news to us who come from Latin America in particular or countries from Latin America or whose ancestors come from Latin America. You see, we come or our ancestors come from countries where people are elected one day and the next day there's a coup. And suddenly, the guy who lost, he ends up the winner. Why do you think so many of us over the last 100 years have come to this country? And when I say us, I mean, of course, our ancestors or whatever who have ended up in the United States. Don't you think that given a choice, by the way, most of those people would stay in their own country? So, so here's what I'm trying to say about the January 6th hearing. The one that Trump led, created, executed the insurrection as it's being called before we go feeling too high and mighty as americans about uncovering this oddity let me share with you a little secret more often than not the reason there is a coup in the countries that i just mentioned that our ancestors came from is because of what the united states did or wanted so look, here's how it works. Our State Department goes around the world deciding that they don't like some dude who won an election, so they send in the CIA or special ops teams or sometimes even the Marines, as they've done in, you know, Colombia and Dominican Republic and Santo Domingo, and, and we change the outcome or, the, or, or, or we start a coup until we get the guy or the gal that we want. Happens all the time. It happened in Colombia. It's happened in Ecuador just recently. Bolivia just recently. And if we go and look at this thing historically, oh my God, I could go on and on and on. There was the Trujillo right case with the Marines in uh, the Dominican Republic and the two most famous cases in Chile where we essentially, 
you know, executed Salvador Allende because we thought he was just too much of a lefty. I don't know. He's saying some things that make us think that maybe he's a lefty. And then there's Guatemala, where there was this dude named uh, Arbenz. He was the president. He was elected. The people loved him because he said, look, we need more land reform. We need uh, the people of uh, our country should own some of their own farmlands rather than being uh, workers for some other country. At the time, according to some estimates, 70 percent of the land in Guatemala was owned by other countries, mostly the United States. So he said, you know, that's not fair. Let's see if we can fix that. Well, hell's bells, man. <laughs> Our CIA, they started a coup to take this guy out because we didn't want that. We started a civil war. That resulted in the deaths of some 200,000 people in Guatemala. 200,000 people died in Guatemala because they elected the wrong guy. So then there was an insurrection. Then there was a coup. And then there was a civil war. And yeah, that almost happened here, right? Generally speaking, we Americans are prevented, by the way, from knowing that our government does this, right? That we go around the world and we start coups, that, he, that, that we interfere in elections, that remove, we remove leaders we don't like, right? But there, but there are actually two people in the Trump administration that seem to delight in this. They were, they, I mean, by the way, when I say they happen to be in the Trump administration, please, I'm not blaming this on Trump. This is not Trump's ordeal. In fact, if anything, of all the presidents, Trump was, from a foreign policy standpoint, the least likely to do this. Trump even criticized this to his credit. Okay? But there did happen to be two people in his administration who literally talked about what I just said. See, what I just described is supposed to be kind of a secret. And most people are not supposed to know stuff that the CIA goes around the world and changes leaders, creates coups, but we do, which is always weird, especially when you hear people, when you hear MSNBC and some of these people saying, oh my God, I'm shocked. These accusations that Russia may have interfered in a U.S. election. Can you imagine, oh my God, interfering in somebody else's election? <sighs> You know, I could hear Mika Brzezinski right now, I mean, having a cow about this, right? When, in fact, her own father was involved in doing this kind of thing during the Carter administration. And our government has been doing this kind of stuff forever and a day. So, yeah. But let me go back to the... You, you've got to watch this. Because it's one thing for Rick Sanchez to sit here and tell you that this kind of shit happens all the time in Latin America and... If you're going to talk about insurrections and you're going to talk about coups, then we should probably talk about this to give it context, right? Because what are we talking about in this country right now? Coups and insurrections because of the January 6th hearings. We're hearing all these details. And now I got to ask you about this particular thing where insurrections and coups are our middle name, right? So it is kind of weird to hear these two guys that you're about to hear from. Right. And, and, and to them, it's not a secret to them. The fact that we go around the world doing this is kind of a joke. The first one is John Bolton taking a question where he jokes about it. And the journalist, Jake Tapper, which shows what a moron he is. He laughs about it, too. Here it is. I, I do want to ask a follow up um when we were talking about what is capable, what you need to do to be able to plan a coup, and you, you cited your expertise having planned coups. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but uh, 
successful coups? There's another... I feel like you're this other stuff you're not telling me about. I think I'm sure there is. It's a joke. Yeah. Yeah, man. I'm, yeah, I'm John Bolton. I'm one of the guys who went around the world and I killed people and I started coups. And uh, if we didn't like a president who was elected in a certain country, like let's say, I don't know, Colombia, I don't know, Venezuela, uh, uh, you know, maybe uh, the Dominican Republic, uh, maybe uh, even uh, Uruguay or uh, some of the other countries that have had elections recently. We just decide that we're going to not take the guy the people elected and we're going to start a coup so we can get our guy in there. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. And the journalist, instead of being a proper journalist and saying, wait a minute, you're doing that to people? Representing us, the greatest country in the world, the United States of America, he laughs. Yeah, Jake Tapper thinks it's a joke, which tells you a hell of a lot about Jake Tapper, doesn't it? Tells you a hell of a lot about Jake Tapper. Is he on our side or is he on the dark side? Seriously. I mean, I don't mean to go, you know, all, you know, crazy here with that term dark. I'm just saying, I mean, there are people who do good things and there are people who do bad things. Journalists are supposed to do good things. You know, not pat some guy on the back because he's telling us that he's, uh, you know, going around the world starting coups and he thinks it's a joke. You want to know about another guy? <laughs> How about Pompeo? I mean, l l gosh, listen to Pompeo talking about what it's like to be a CIA director. Go. I was a CIA director. We lied. We cheated. We stealed. Stole. It's, it was like we, we, had, we, had entire, we had entire training courses. Uh, Yay! Absolutely! Yay! Yay, 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 yay! We lie, we cheat, we steal, we kill. We just go around doing whatever the fuck we want, man. Because we're the USA. And when I say that, you're going to applaud me. Kind of sucks, doesn't it? I don't know about you. I know that some of this stuff happens. And I know sometimes some of this stuff is even necessary to a certain extent. But... To be this cavalier about it, you know, 50,000 children died in Yemen in the last five, six, seven years. And uh, they died because of a coup, so to speak, that we started. That's what Pompeo's bragging about, you know. 200,000 people dead in Guatemala. How many people died in Honduras? These are wars. These are coups. These are civil wars that, you know, these guys start like the Dulles brothers. Right. So for, for those of you, and th this is why I say this, for those of you shocked by what you're seeing, you know, with this uh, January 6th committee hearing, I say spare us. And, and if you're thinking, wow, this insurrection is so like un-American. Yeah, it's maybe a little un-American, at least on our soil. But if Trump wanted to know how to pull this shit off properly, all, all, all that uh, orange man would have to do is look south. Look south of the border. <laughs> See, that's kind of one of the advantages of being a Latino in America. We love this country. We really do. We love this country as much as anybody, but we also look at it differently. You know, Be, being a Latino American or a, a descendant of a Latino American, a Hispanic American, whatever the hell you want to call us, just don't call us Latinx. That's a really stupid term. And by the way, we're not people of color and we're not brown, um, whatever those terms mean. But we are Latinos, proud, Latinas and Latinos. 
And we do have a different perspective on things politically in this country because we have a wider angle lens. You know, we have a lighter, a wider angle lens, if you will. That said, it's starting to look painfully obvious and even provable that, you know, President Trump really did want to pull off an Alan Dulles. I referred to the Dulles brothers a little while ago. Dulles, he was one of the most corrupt and vicious CIA directors in the history of the United States. Look him up. You'll find him. So why do we say this about Trump now? Because this January 6th committee is presenting some pretty interesting testimony. For example, there's testimony of a uh, member of a militia group who says there's no question. Remember, this guy was in the militia group. He says there's no question that President Trump was deputizing, encouraging, and deploying. Listen to what I'm saying here. Escúchame, right? Deputizing, encouraging, and deploying the Oath Keepers who were without question, he says, and you're going to hear him say it here, a paramilitary group. These are not just citizens who were like angry, oh my God, we're against something and we're going to march and demonstrate. No, these guys were created designed to wreak havoc, wreak havoc. And uh, they're a paramilitary group who was sent to the Capitol by Mr. Trump. So says Jason Van Totenhove, who is the communications director for the Oath Keepers. The, the, he was always looking for ways to legitimize what he was doing, um, whether by wrapping it in the, the trappings of it's not a militia, it's a community preparedness team. Um, we're not a militia, we're an educational outreach group. It's a veteran support group. But again, we've got to stop with this, this dishonesty and the mincing of words and just call things for what they are. You know, it, he, he, he's a militia leader. He had these grand visions of being a paramilitary leader. And the Insurrection Act would have given him a path forward with that. You know, the, the, the fact that the president was communicating, whether directly or indirectly, messaging, you know, kind of that gave him the nod. Wow. Wow. Right? Paramilitary leader. He said, let's call it what it is. They went there to essentially battle. And they were recruited and sent there by the President of the United States who, quote, gave them the nod. And I guess we're learning that this was an act that was done on social media with certain words. These people were called there with a mission. They knew exactly what they had to do. And when they got there, they got their, they got their uh, marching orders from the president himself. There are some people who went there and said, look, uh, we went there because the president told us we should be here and we believed in this president. I don't blame them. If the commander-in-chief tells you something bad is happening and we need all Amer able-bodied Americans to do something, and they show up, and then the president says, and now that you're here, I need you to go over there and start a fire or, or, or shoot that guy or, or hang Mike Pence. Or, he said, we were just doing what the president told us to do, including this guy. I mean, there, there, there are the actual rioters, right? The militia men and the women themselves. Why did they actually assault the Capitol? Why did they riot? Because their commander-in-chief told them to do so. 
So why did you decide to march to the Capitol? Um, well, basically, uh, you know, the president, you know, got everybody riled up, told everybody to head on down. So we basically were just following what he said. Wow. I saw a lot of those people. That, I was there that day. I was covering the story. I was amongst them. The uh, January 6th uh, demonstrators, rioters, whatever the hell you want to call them. In fact, I got COVID that day. The next day I woke up with COVID after hanging out with that crowd. I mean, that's, you know, neither here nor there. Just uh, an interesting part of my particular history. But I was there on January 6th covering the assault on the Capitol. I saw these people. I talked to these people. I understood their ire. And there was no question to me that the people that were there, they were there because they believed Donald Trump when he said this election was fraudulent. We now know the election was not fraudulent, but they didn't know that, right? Look, flip this around, right? Why don't we just flip this around for half a second? Because we keep hearing about this insurrection, insurrection thing. But I mean, you know, as if, as if the fact that they were there and they were angry at Congress is in and of itself a fault. Let's suppose instead of being a Trump supporter, you're an Obama supporter. A Bush supporter, a Clinton supporter, whatever, right? A Reagan supporter. And your guy, Reagan, Obama, told you the republic is in peril and I need you, right? Hmm? And someone is trying to take, I, Ronald Reagan, I'm, I'm telling you there's some force here, they're commies or they're Russians or they're Chinese or they're Cubans or they're Nicaraguans, Right? like that great movie in that era and they're coming here and they're trying to take away my presidency they're going to shoot nancy i don't know whatever and and he got you to believe that and you this is your commander-in-chief this is your guy so you show up and do what he wants you to do well this is the same thing that happened here i mean I, you know that's why when i hear cnn and msnbc the liberal media especially criticizing the storming of the capitol i tend to disagree with them that it's such a heinous act i mean Here's my point. It's not that they stormed the Capitol. The act in and of itself is courageous if the reason for it was proper. I will fight for my country. I will storm that Capitol if somebody gives me the right cause for it. But the reason in this case, I mean, I have a problem with defending something that didn't really need defending or worse was instituted by a lifelong cheater. So think about it. A guy who we know that every time he plays golf, every single person that seemingly has played golf with him has said he cheated. He's cheated on every single one of his wives. He's cheated on this taxes. He's cheated in his business. I mean, his whole life is about cheating. That's okay. I mean, everybody has their personality trait. But... All of a sudden, a guy who we know has cheated every time, and everybody says if he loses this election, he's going to say he won. So he loses the election, he says he won, and people go and follow him. Now, can you blame those people? No, I say no. He's the commander-in-chief, and they believed in him, and they trusted him. So 
you know, as a guy who thinks there's a lot of things that are wrong with this country and I love this country and I'd love to fix those things, if somebody told me that by storming the Capitol I, I could help fix those things, our corrupt foreign policy, our corrupt political system, and some of the many things that you could probably add to our list, and all it took was storming the Capitol and making a lot of noise and we could somehow change those things, count me in. I'm in. So that's my point. It's not the insurrection itself. It's the reason for the insurrection. And these idiots who are criticizing stuff, they, they, they don't get that. And I think that's an important part of the point. And that's what I'm getting out of this January 6th committee hearings. That's what I'm getting out of these January 6th committee hearings. That there was a heinous act because at its root, right, its origins were heinous, not the act itself. In fact, I'd like to see more Americans get involved with a system that right now feels to me in many ways undemocratic. For example, the way we elect politicians. 2% of the populace actually gets to choose the politicians that we elect. The rest of it comes from donors. The money comes from 98% of the funds that go to the people who are chosen to run for offices in this country come from the money and the people who give them the money, the donors. So that means 98% of the people of the decision is made by donors, not the rest of us. We just get to choose at the end from what's left over. We should fix that. You know, is it worth marching somewhere? I'll march. So joining us now is... Uh, William Howe, political science professor at the University of Chicago, prominent author. He's written about the presidency, including his latest book that's called President's Populism and the Crisis of Democracy. So, uh, Professor, can I call you Bill? You can call me Will or William. I Will or William? Bill. Yeah, mom and dad called me Bill when I was young, and I've, I've graduated to Will or William. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. You've graduated on to uh, William. How are things in Chicago? You good? Yeah, things are really good. I love the summers here in Chicago. I feel like we earned them. Yeah, good for you. So you've been watching the January 6th uh, committee hearings. I imagine a guy like you must be sitting there taking copious notes and stuff. What, what do you think of this shit? Well, uh, I think uh, a lot of things. I, I mean, I haven't been taking in every minute. I sort of feel like we have to pace ourselves. The the struggles that we're in are long-term struggles. Um, mm -hmm. And you can drive yourself nuts if you watch every single minute and hang on every single atrocity. That said, I think this the, these hearings are doing a remarkable job of shining a bright light on an event that will be written about for a very long time, one that impugns a major American party, one that calls into question the health of our democracy, um, and it shines a bright light on the machinations of a would-be demagogue who occupied the White House for four years. I was thinking earlier, having this conversation with my listeners, that there's a part of me that thinks that America's getting a little bit of what it's dished out. I mean, this insurgency, this coup, guess what? We come from Latin America. This podcast is mostly for the 20% of the population in the United States who are Latino Americans. Um, we've, seen this, we've seen this show before. <laughs> and, and most often we've seen it because in some of the countries we or our ancestors hailed from, Professor, um, there was some dude who got elected 
and all of a sudden, you know, uh, the CIA director in the United States or the State Department said, no, no, we don't like that guy. He said something that he might be a lefty or he might decide to do something we don't like. So we've sent in the CIA. We've sent in the Marines. We've sent, I mean, these insurgencies, this coup that Americans are now so mystified watching, if Donald Trump wanted to take notes on how to do it, all he had to do was read American history in Latin America. Am I wrong, Professor? Well, I think that you're absolutely right. That there's a long history of the United States disrupting, to put it sort of nicely, uh, disrupting other elections <laughs> in other countries. This, this uh, insurgency was homegrown. This is not a story of Latin American countries returning, yeah. you know, favor um, and, and intervening in goings on here. This is something which is entirely homegrown and is entirely this, this these hearings are pointing the finger squarely at, at Trump. And I would say more generally at the rise of populism within this country. Yeah, but from what we saw in particular on during the last hearing, there seemed to be to me no whether you're a Trump lover or a Trump hater, there's no question there's a connection between the Oath Keepers, the leaders of the Oath Keepers, that that paramilitary group felt like they had a mission. That mission had been given to them by their commander in chief. And it was their duty to go to Washington and then to go to the Capitol and to do what they did. And we heard them say in testimony, we did this because he told us to do this. Is there any other, am I missing something? Is there any other way to see this at this point? And how much, and what do you think the repercussions of that are going to be? Look, I think that's what a bunch of them thought. That's what they're saying during these hearings. I'll say one point. I am in, I have no interest in defending Trump. Um, but I do think one thing is worth keeping in mind is that the things that political leaders say and the way that citizens understand it as dictates to behave one way or another need to always map up cleanly. And so I think part of the job of these hearings is to connect those dots very carefully to say that this isn't just a matter of a handful of members of the Oath Keepers um, uh, misinterpreting or or, 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 or being over eager to carry the mantle of what they think Bush wants, excuse me, Trump wants, but rather um, them really following a set of instructions um, that were laid out both publicly and um, through private channels. Do you think at this point, Justice is taking notes, copious notes, I imagine, and considering whether they would potentially have to bring charges against the former president of the United States. I think this puts pressure on the Justice Department for sure to do something uh visible, to take some kind of action. I mean, they're undertaking their own investigations right now um, and collecting their own information. And they may know things that have not been revealed in these hearings. Um, that said, they are them just taking a pass on these events um, to avoid the political controversy that hmm. they would obviously court if they go after Trump is, is going to be made all the more difficult by virtue of these hearings. You know, Liz Cheney did something interesting yesterday that had me thinking. First of all, I'll ask you about the content of what she did. She teased forward, as we say in television, that they learned yesterday that one of their witnesses was contacted by the former president of the United States, where he apparently may have tried to 
tamper with her testimony. I'm using that word because it's non-legal, but I'm wondering if they can prove, because apparently she got this message from the president, then contacted her attorney, her attorney contacted justice. We don't know if it's, there's a possibility that she went ahead and called the president and they have him recorded. And if that exists and they can prove the president of the United States tried to put pressure on a witness to not testify in a federal investigation, I am thinking he's almost got to go to jail, right? Well, it certainly puts all the more pressure on the Justice Department to, to move forward. I mean, I think that the audience for the, that particular claim were the lawyers who are looking at these cases. In the broad pantheon of uh, things that Trump has done, would you rank that in the top 50? I would not among among objectionable actions taken by this president. But it's one that will resonate particularly with lawyers who are thinking about what's actionable in a court of law. And so this, to my mind, was an effort on the part of Cheney to speak across across the way and, 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 and reach her, her colleagues over in the Department of Justice. You know, one of the things that have really been interesting about this uh, hearing has been the way it's manifested. Um, most of the times, and my God, if anybody knows this, you, 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 you do. I mean, you've written about this. You are one of the most prominent voices when it comes to presidential politics in the past, whether it's been Watergate or Ron Contra or whatever the hell you want to call it, you get these, these politicians, Republican and Democrat during these hearings that the American people are supposed to watch. And we did in the old days because there was only three channels, NBC, ABC, and, and CBS. So we would sit there and we would watch these things, but they were horribly boring, sometimes even stupefying. Because some of these Congress people, they're dumb as shit. And they don't even know how to talk well, and they don't even know how to follow an entomime. And I would get lost, and I would, at the end of the day, it was half most of the time it was a wash because we don't even know what the hell they were trying to say. Sometimes you get some great testimony where a guy like John Dean goes in there and spells it out for us, but it wasn't because they were asked great questions. But this time, this time, these guys on this January 6th hearing, uh, committee hearing, they figured out, it seems to me, something. Maybe it's the attention span of the American people. You tell me. But they're being very cogent and very deliberate about their how they are uh, manifesting the information so that it's more palatable for people. It's almost like, dare I say, Professor, they're kind of producing a television show more than a hearing, right? I think that that's right. I mean, I think hearings generally, the ambition of hearings is to captivate the public's attention in some way, to frame a larger discussion. They're doing it this go around particularly well. They're not achieving it by just having a one 90-minute simplified characterization of the events they're diving in deep but with each day of these hearings they're offering an overarching theme they're bringing forward people who are uh, compelling yeah um i think liz cheney is doing a heck of a job i mean it's it's this is somebody with rem unimpeachable conservative credentials whose affect is steady 
and and determination is clear to stand up to what she sees as being gross violations of the constitution and an acute threat to democracy. Um, that this is, like, Democrats are not known for telling a coherent story no. <laughs> um, and they're doing a pretty good job this go around. It's interesting you would say that because they're not. And, and it is surprising that it's almost like they've hired some television producer or some Broadway producer to go in there and choreograph this thing so that it's so easy to digest. And they really are doing a great job of making it digestible. I do wonder, though, and worry about it. So if it's if it might be a little too showbiz, if, if it might be a little too manipulated, you think? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that what they're pulling off is pretty remarkable. Um, this is an event that we all saw live and that many people thought that they fully understood in the moment. And we're talking about a year and a half later without the cooperation of a major American party. And they're diving in deep. Again, they're not just offering sound bites dished up uh, yeah. at the end of a, you know, a long workday. They're spending full days focusing on different dimensions of uh, the lead up to and the execution of this insurrection. You're right. That's pretty but, remarkable. But, but you're, you're right. But that's because they. it does seem they're doing it correctly. They're doing interviews, which are boring. They even, when you look at them, they even look horrible. The guy's out of frame and, you know, you could imagine if we had to sit through all of that, nobody would be watching. So they've taken that and they've synthesized it to find the best sound bites, the best information to make it more cogent. I totally get what you're saying, and I think your point is a good one. But here's what worries me. Here's what worries me. Let's go forward four years, and President, I don't know, X is in the White House, right? President DeSantis. And uh, he decides that he wants to go after, I don't know, some Democrat. Uh, maybe the governor of California, who apparently he hates, right? And um, they and they create this kangaroo court situation, but instead of using the sound bites or the testimony that is salient and properly derived, they say the hell with it. Let's just make sure we get them to say something. Let's mix and minus the information. Let's get the sound bites that make him looking like he's a corrupt or whatever the hell we try to prove. And they literally could create the TV show to tell a story that isn't a true story. But since this precedent has already been set during this hearing, the future does not bode well for honest men and honest presentations. That's my concern, Professor. Yeah, although this doesn't set that uh, precedent. They couldn't say that they were doing the same thing by manipulating a bunch of testimony and pointing their finger at somebody who is politically inconvenient. Um, that said, I share your worry. Um, I think that what stands behind these hearings, both in its content, but also in its kind of execution, are deep concerns about the health of our democracy. And if what we have are parties that are going to play tit-for-tat strategies that are going to rapidly escalate, um, we stand to lose it. So another space in which this is going to play out is what's going to happen the next time somebody has to nominate somebody to the Supreme Court when the opposition party holds the Senate? Are they going to get a hearing at all? And if not, what does that mean for our ability then to deal with that basic fact of governance? Um, I think there are lots of, that, that's another one. We could, we could roll out mm. a whole list of things where you'd say, 
things are bad now, but they're only going to get worse because whatever action is being taken down, taken by one party, the other one is going to weaponize. I'm glad you said that because um, I've been thinking a and lot. That's how we lose a democracy. I, I'm glad you said that, Professor, because I've been thinking a lot this week about Justice Kavanaugh, who's been coming under a lot of criticism later, lately, uh, for doing essentially the opposite of what he said he would do. Right? He did say that Roe versus Wade was established law. And then as soon as he got his chance, just like some people said he would do, because some people back then said he's lying, he's, he, he doesn't believe that. As soon as he gets a chance, he's going to overturn Roe versus Wade. So now he overturns Roe versus Wade, and Americans are furious, right? Many women in particular, women's groups, are furious with him. Obviously, he always has his supporters as well. Recently, he was at a Morton's eating, and this large group of people showed up outside of the Mortons with signs protesting him. Now, they never confronted him. He barely even had contact with them. The only way he could have even seen if they were there is if he looked out the window and saw them across the street. Nonetheless, nonetheless, because of that situation, a Fox News reporter asks Secretary Pete Buttigieg if he thought that was bullying and if he thought that was unfair and if he thought that was proper. I want you to listen to how uh, the secretary uh, answers this question, because I think it's uh, I think it's an interesting response. Here it is. Look, when uh, public officials go into public life, we, we should expect two things. One, uh, you should always be free from violence, harassment, and intimidation. And two, you're never going to be free from criticism or peaceful protest, people exercising their First Amendment rights. Okay. And that's what happened in this case. Remember, the justice never even came into contact with these protesters, uh, reportedly didn't see or hear them. And these protesters are upset because a right an important right that the majority of Americans support was taken away. Understood. Not only the right to choose, by the way, but, the, but this justice was part of the process of stripping away the right to privacy. As long as I've been alive, settled case law in the United States has been that the Constitution protected a right to privacy, and that has now been thrown out the window by justices, including Justice Kavanaugh, who, as I recall, swore up and down in front of God and everyone, including the United States Congress, that they were going to leave settled case law alone. So, yes, people are upset. They're going to exercise their First okay. Amendment rights. And as long as that's peaceful, that's protected. Compare that, for example, to the reality that as a country right now, we're reckoning with the fact that a mob summoned by the former president All right, well, let me follow up, Mr. attacked the United States Capitol for the purpose of overthrowing the election and very nearly succeeded in preventing the peaceful transfer of power. But I think common sense can tell the difference. But but as a high-profile public figure, sir, are you comfortable with protesters protesting when you and your husband go to dinner at a restaurant? Protesting peacefully outside in a public space? Sure. Look, I can't even tell you the number of spaces, venues, and scenarios where I've been protested. And, and the bottom line is this. Any public figure should always, always be free from violence, intimidation, and harassment, but should never be free from criticism or people exercising their First Amendment rights. I got to tell you, he may look like a little kid, but he sure talks like a grown-up, doesn't he? <laughs> He's that was quite a performance. You saw the, the the anchor repeatedly trying to intervene and he just held steady and delivered a coherent kind of uh, uh, soliloquy on on, yeah. on what's at stake. And it is. And, and by the way, just so 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 you guys. So you can understand exactly what we mean by the ire that has been caused by people who are on the other side of this argument 
who were convinced that Kavanaugh should not have been allowed to become a Supreme Court justice because he was going to do, they say, exactly what he did. Here is Kavanaugh when he was being questioned uh, by the Senate uh, before he was confirmed, specifically about Roe v. Wade. Here it is. Have your views about whether Roe is settled precedent changed since you were in the Bush White House? My... Um, yes or no? Well, I'll tell you what my okay. views... Uh, I'm not sure what it's referring to about Bush White House, but I will uh, tell you what my view right now is. This is the point I want to make that I think is important. Planned Parenthood versus Casey reaffirmed Roe and did so by considering the stare decisis factors. So Casey now becomes a precedent on precedent. It's a precedent on top of a precedent. So what he's saying is, still can be this is established law, baby. I can't touch this, so don't worry. I am not going to touch Roe versus Wade. I'm going to keep hands off. He didn't do that. No, he didn't. But I, I, here's what I'd say. I think that we need to take a hard look, not just at what he said in this particular moment, but what these nomination hearings are really trying to accomplish. So much of them are just about theater and dodging hard questions and behaving in ways that are that are disingenuous. To claim that I have no opinion about a subject matter or I shouldn't speak to a subject matter because it might come before the court, which is a move that they regularly make, shouldn't be tolerated going forward. Um, but we live in this world where we, we have these short hearings that uh, are, are that lead to appointments that are for life and that are not binding. They're not contracts that these people are written. And there's no, short of impeachment, there's no recourse. So when, you know, George H.W. Bush comes out and says when he's running for office, you know, read my lips, no new taxes, and then raises taxes. In 92, the electorate can say, nope, you did something you said you weren't going to do. There's no subsequent opportunity for us to reconsider short of an impeachment, and that's not going to happen given the high threshold. But we've gotten to a point, haven't we, where you don't judge or choose people based on their character or their knowledge or their standard of fairness. The red team chooses a guy based on how red they think he can be, and the blue team chooses a gal based on how blue they think that that person can be. And that kind of sucks, doesn't it? Because we're getting, I mean, I'm sorry, with all due respect to Justice Kavanaugh, I watched his performance. I own a publicly traded company. I would not have hired that guy. I am. We, we, we have people come through for interviews all the time. If a guy in the middle of an interview started crying and, 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 and talking about how much he likes to drink beer and all these other things that this guy went into, there's no way in hell that I would have hired him. Most I don't think Walmart would have hired him as a manager. And yet he's chosen as a, as a Supreme Court justice because he fits exactly what one side wanted. That's just, man, that's wrong. That's exactly right. And that's exactly how people then are voting in the Senate. I mean, the presidents who are blue are picking decidedly blue nominees and presidents who are red are picking decidedly red nominees. And the Democratic and Republican parties in the Senate are voting accordingly. And there's very little space for assessment of their considered judgment, their their values, their commitment to the country as a whole. This is about ideology and partisanship start to finish. How do we change that? Is there a possibility that at some point we can come because it looks to me that every day professor and you got to think about this because 
you write about this. It's every day we become further and further apart and further and further siloed in this country. And in the process, the people who lead us are doing the same, if not ponying it up. Well, the way that we fix any one thing is going to require us to pan back and ask much larger, bigger, basic questions about the government that we have and the government that we want. Um, we're not going to fix the nomination process for the judiciary in a serious minded way without thinking about the rising polarization between the two parties, about basic questions of accountability, about changes in the media environment. Um, there's a, a whole, all these things are linked in important ways. And I think we're long overdue to sort of step back from the local crisis, be it Kavanaugh's appointment to the Supreme Court, who then behaves in ways that are antithetical to the claims that he made in his nomination or the January 6th um, uh, insurrection, and to think uh, anew about the design of our institutions and how we might reform them, um, because we're in real trouble. You know, you mentioned the media, and I guess I, for those of us uh, who are, are in the media, in my case, you know, I, uh, I, I went to school and got my journalism degree, which today most of the people who practice journalism aren't even journalists, nor were, the, were they trained as, as journalists. They're chosen for some other reason uh, on these cable networks, as, as, as we see. But I, I had my own show on CNN. I had one on NBC. I, I worked on Fox News. I mean, I've run the gamut. So I understand the media industry and where it is right now. I'm wondering what, uh, what your take is on how the media is or is not helping this uh, siloed situation that you and I were just talking about. Well, yeah, I'd say a couple of things. One thing is that the bifurcation of sort of liberal media and conservative media that we're observing today is not altogether new in the 19th century. Um, there were plenty of decidedly left and right political newspapers mm -hmm. that did the bidding of their parties. Um, this challenge isn't altogether new. I think there are some challenges that have to do with the immediacy of um, and the, uh, 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 of the news flow, um, the inability to break through the din. I mean, you pointed to earlier, like if you're a president who's trying to impose some order on hard debates that we need to have, it's very hard to do it in a world in which we don't have three network channels and the voice of God coming through them in order to hmm. captivate the attention of a populace, but rather hundreds and hundreds of media outlets. How do you, how do you bring that into a common square where we, where the terms of our discussion can be set so that we can actually move forward. It's a re, it's a profound challenge. You know, um, a part of the problem though is a corporatization of media. I mean, there used to be a time where, and I think we're starting to see some of that now with digital media and with podcasts and with what we're doing right here. We're not owned by a corporation. Uh, however, for the most part, for the last. 10 or 20 years in this country, there has been a concentration, a corporatization, if you will, of the media where one or individual or one company owns not one or two television stations, but a hundred television stations and five television networks. Um, that's gotta be problematic. And the corporation has a decided point of view. Um, yeah. They're not just in the business of, you know, cultivating, objective local news, they're, they're on one mission or another. They're, when we think about changes in the media, there's not one trend line. That's one. The decline of local news is another mm -hmm. one um, that we should be worried about. Um, 
the the rise of small uh, online media outlets mm -hmm. as well that aren't necessarily owned by a corporation, but that provide opportunities for people to enter into community and to talk with like-minded folk about particular issues, that the opportunities to do that has expanded dramatically. That's a good um, thing. And, yeah. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, some of these developments are really good um, and they brought in voices that haven't previously been heard and, yeah. and opened up space for people who've been marginalized for for a very long time to articulate what they think about our politics. For example, what we're doing here. I mean, we, we, we profess or we sell ourselves or we like to see ourselves as a Latino-based podcast. It doesn't mean because you have to be Latino to be able to have a conversation with us. But look, I'll be honest with you. Latinos are 20% of the population of the United States. You know, if we were a, a GDP or a country unto ourselves, we'd be the third fastest growing in the entire world, only behind China and India. 80% of us are U.S. citizens. For the most part, 95% of those under 41 in the United States speak English, and yet most people don't see us that way, including media entities. So Latinos who are acculturated and assimilated in the United States, you know this, you live in Chicago, they're huge swaths of our communities, but they don't have representation. They got to just choose between Fox and CNN and MSNBC, and for the most part, even there, they're usually about 2% of the voices heard in those places. So here's an opportunity for us to go out and create a vehicle for a voice or an expression or an idea or an ideology that's often not shared or a perspective that's not shared. And to build community yeah. in the process and to speak across your own differences and to figure out what are our priorities, right? So one one game is how do we get entree into established venues? How, how do you go from, you know, 1% to 2% of the stories uh, on, on major network news being... Uh, centrally about uh, your community, and the other is to say let's let's build a platform of our own, which is what you're doing here, yep. uh, and to come together. Yeah. By the way, speaking of corporations, I got one for you. So you you probably know this, and I know there are variables to this story. So uh, Jonas Salk essentially came up with the vaccine for polio. When he did that, most people said he, he changed the world. He may be, I mean, as 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 heroes go he may be one of the greatest of you know the last hundred years and after he did that he was asked so are you uh going to establish a patent are you going to start a business are you going to own this thing because obviously you could be the richest man in the world and he said no he said my discovery and i live perfectly fine i don't need more my discovery does not belong to me it belongs to the world wow what a gorgeous beautiful humanistic thing that that man did i mean i've always been struck by that by that story that that idea and now um let's counter that with something that happened recently so moderna at the height of the uh, situation that we were all in with covid as you know is one of the companies that got a big check from you and me professor we wrote these you know big, big checks from our tax dollars and moderna got 2.5 billion dollars right 2.5 billion dollars with a b now we recently learned oh my god they got 2.5 billion their ceo got almost a billion of that himself i mean talk about just the opposite of the story i just told and here's, uh, here's old Bernie uh, giving him hell. Moderna makes huge amounts of money. This guy receives $800 million in gold in golden parachute. Am I right about that? 
I'm not aware of that. It's not something I would keep up with, particularly in this job. Not something you would keep up with? Um, the head of the Food and Drug Administration, you would not be concerned that a guy, when we're producing, trying to get vaccines out to people, um, it was, Mike, I'm corrected, it's a $926 million golden parachute. If that's true, if the federal government gives a company two and a half billion dollars and short time later the head of the company gets a 900 million dollar golden parachute that is not a concern to you no, i didn't say it was not a concern i said it's not something i keep up with in daily life it's just not something i keep up with in daily life pardon me but what the fuck i mean come on man if you work for our government and you're responsible for those funds and somebody gives you that question and you go, oh, I didn't know. I'm, that's just not something I look into. Give me a break. I don't know. Will, what do you think? Uh, well, sitting behind this headline are deep concerns about rising inequality between the rich and the poor and a broader sense that we've lost our way in terms of basic values. Um, it, it's obscene <laughs> what some people are paid in corporate life um, and that in a time of a pandemic public funds were used to reward the head of Moderna in this way is deeply unsettling but I, but I want to say one other mm -hmm. thing which is that what Moderna did was remarkable yes. um, and if you think about 2.5 billion dollars as an investment in order to come up with a vaccine to attend to a problem for a country that was in free fall. That was money, to my mind, that was money well Agreed. spent. Um, now, so how, how it was then distributed is, is a different matter. Um, but us spending a large amount of money to then produce a vaccine which didn't previously exist in very short order, given the death toll, given the number of people who were at home, um, not, be able to, not be able to work or be able to go to school and all of the costs associated with that. We desperately needed to stem that, um, that, that staunch, that bleeding. Yeah, look, I'm not a communist. I'm not a socialist. I believe in, I believe in the free market. I believe in capitalism. But there's a difference between capitalism working for the people and uh, crony capitalism where it's all about the mighty dollar and there's greed and there's corruption. And you can't tell me that out of $2.5 billion, one man deserves $1 billion of that? What is that, 40% or something? I'm not a mathematician. But those numbers just seem crazy to me. They seem fucking crazy. I mean, we just shouldn't allow that. Somebody should go to jail for that, I think. Or, or there's something wrong with our society, Professor. It is alarming. And I think, sadly, it is not just a story of this uh, CEO and this company that there, we can point to lots of examples of unbelievable uh, corporate pay for the heads uh, of these companies um, and, and people who are paid massive amounts of money, even in the, in the face of abject failure, which is not what we're talking about here. Um, uh, and so, yes, I, I mean, if, if your point is, should we be concerned and, 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 and even disgusted? Um, yes. Hmm. I want to talk about Steve Bannon, if we could, for just what do you think? What do you think of Bannon? I think Bannon is um, is a piece of work. <laughs> I thought um, you were going to say something know? else, but you'd get in trouble at the University <laughs> of Chicago. <laughs> 
Right. Well, there was a time, you know, several years ago, he was invited to the University of Chicago and he was going to then debate uh, one of our professors and he would not have fared well um, against who he was going to be paired up against. And then he ended up not showing. Um, so we had a, we had a, a, a brief, you know, flirtation with him, but he didn't show. Um, but look, he's a guy who at once is played an important role in the rise of Trump and then held on to unbelievable power in the Trump administration, but then for a short period of time. Um, and, you know, on one hand, you know, we see him as like a, this guy who's got a shock of hair, who's out on boats, um, mm -hmm. holding, I mean, he looks unhinged. Um, and on the other is incredibly influential and has tapped into something profound about the direction of American politics and is directing it in ways that is deeply troubling if you care about the health of our democracy. I, you know, as a Latino, as a Hispanic in the United States of America, I think he's a piece of shit for what he did, where he was essentially arrested for trying to fool other I guess, I don't know what you would call them, redneck Americans, hateful Americans, people who spend all their days thinking how much they hate Mexicans because they think Mexicans are the problem in America and all Latinos that we should get rid of them. And there are people who think that way. And Bannon apparently found a way to get those people to send him money by building a wall that never really was built. But nonetheless, he didn't care. I, I, you know, I don't know who he is actually, I don't know who he's exploiting more when he does something like that. The Mexican population or Latinos in America or those poor people who actually think he was going to build them a wall. And he was indicted for that. And apparently Trump got him out. But if you ask me of all the things he's done, I mean, that's the mother load for me. That's terrible. It's, it's all over the place when you think about the people who've been close to Trump. These are people who are, many of them are their grifters. Um, they see this as an opportunity for their moment in the sun and they're trying to leverage it for their own personal gain. And, and sometimes they do so by invoking the language of what's in the best interest of the country. But for the most part, these are people who are, you know, throwing elbows to stand in the shadow of a demagogue. Mm. And it's um, it's not a pretty and you, I I don't, you don't strike me necessarily as uh, as a lib or you know as a you know diehard right wing dude, right? Are you where? where how would you qualify yourself? Um, I think I am generally a moderate, um, but I'm deeply concerned about what's happening in the Republican Party and the transformation of the Republican Party right now. I see it as a distinct threat to uh, the health of the the yeah. country. It, um, it's not our it's not our and, uncle's uh, Republican Party, not our granddad's Republican Party. That's for sure. That's for sure. Speaking of Steve Bannon. So apparently the guy's uh, really, really pissed off and he's mad at Joe Rogan. Why? Joe Rogan came out recently and said, I don't want to interview Donald Trump. I don't like Donald Trump. I don't like what Donald Trump is doing for America. And I'm not going to give him. Uh, as the number one podcast in the world, my millions of viewers so that he can tell him whatever he wants. Now, I got an issue with Joe Rogan not interviewing somebody because I think everyone should be interviewed because ideas should be expressed. But regardless of that, when he said that, apparently Steve Bannon didn't like it. And here's what Steve Bannon now has to say about Joe Rogan. 
and Spotify, and you got Joe Rogan over there trash-talking Trump. Oh, I don't want to give Trump any platform. No, no offense, he doesn't need your platform. He doesn't need your low-information voters, okay? Trump deals with high-information people. Your audience couldn't handle worm, couldn't follow it. Start talking, inverted yield curve, your eyes would cross. You know, (laughs) he's suggesting that people who listen to podcasts are low-information voters, and people who follow Trump are high-information voters? How how do do you respond to that, Will? There's no evidence of that. (laughs) There's just no evidence of that. I mean, that's a great thing to say. He's at once kicking um, a perceived... uh, political enemy and um, pandering to his base by saying, we're the smart ones. We're the ones who are truly in the know, which is part of the larger narrative that he's spinning. There are these masses who, who are lost, but we are, we are the ones who, who see the light and we are the ones who are found. And we're going to be the ones who are going to finally deliver the government back to the people. That's the promise. That's the story. You know, I, by the way, I, I can understand. I have friends, you do too, I'm sure, who vote for Donald Trump and have voted for Donald Trump. And when you ask them, they will normally tell you, yes, I know he's vile, and I'm not happy with the fact that 19 women accusing are accusing him of everything from sexual offenses to rape. I'm not happy about the fact that he bankrupted 11 companies. I'm not happy about the fact that 72 of his vendors have said they had to try and sue him because he wouldn't pay. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there that they realize makes Trump a very vile human being, if not one of the most vile human beings who's ever run for the presidency of the United States. That said... They'll then tell you, but I voted for him because, frankly, I want to bring taxes down, and he was going to bring them down to 20%, and Biden wanted them at 28 or I liked his Supreme Court uh, decisions. or I li- So I know people who hold their nose and vote for Trump because of his policies or what they believe his policies are or what they believe he can accomplish, and I understand that, but that's not what Bannon just said. He said he seems to be suggesting the people who vote for Trump are voting for him because they're just really smart, educated, cultured people uh, who are somehow superior to others who don't vote for him. And I, I, that's where I really call BS. I don't know about you. Who and who and who have bought into the uh, Trump narrative about the future of the country and what's at stake. I mean. Trump's presidency was one that was a mix of populism, but then also a willingness to go along with the wishes and interests of traditional conservatives um, because he hadn't taken full control of the Republican Party. So we did, in fact, see a whole lot of deregulatory activity and a reduction in taxes and the appointment of a bunch of truly conservative justices to the judiciary. All those are like standards, mm-hmm. conservative wins. And so the kind of person you were describing would say, "Ah, oh, I got something for for my vote um at some point though i think you have to ask yourself is that how long i mean how bad does this stink need to be for you willing to at what point will you then say enough like the the kind of corruption that we're seeing to our governing institutions to the media to our ability to come together and speak across difference to uh the health of our democracy broadly i mean we're really in trouble here and there are big challenges that are right around the bend. Um, and if we can't get a handle on them, um, we're going to pay a much bigger cost than the cost that they're worrying about, whether or not their tax rate is going to be 28 or 20%. Final question about the midterms. Do you think the Democrats now, with a little wind in their sails from the uh, Supreme Court decision, will be able to uh, make it a little different than what the expectation is and what history tells us, which is they're going to get 
crushed. Um, so my sense is that the expectation was exaggerated before the Roe v. Wade decision, that it is, of course, true that in off-year elections, the recumbent party of the president regularly loses seats um, and in, in Congress, and the Democrats are holding onto the bare majorities in the House and Senate, and so they were likely to lose one, if not both, chambers. Um, but the idea that they were going to sort of be wiped out it was to overstate matters. Um, I think it will be interesting to see the effect of not just the decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe, but the, the, the whole spate of decisions that were handed down. Um, and, and what I see is the initial volley of uh, a newly empowered conservative court to do the bidding of um, a, a fragment of the American public and to use the powers vested in the judiciary in order to, to, to do that bidding. Um, if that's going to bring out more Democrats, it, it, it may well do so. I still think that the point prediction, though, is that the Democrats lose one or both chambers. My guess is they lose the House. But what? Uh, look, I don't have a crystal ball. What What's the next book you're working on? <laughs> I'm, I'm writing a book right now uh, with my regular co-author, Terry Moe, that's thinking about the rise of the administrative state and what that's done to American politics and the two-party system and to presidential Administrative power. state. What does that mean? So the rise of the federal mm. bureaucracy, the federal bureaucracy a century ago was a fraction of what it is today, just in terms of the number of agencies, the number of people employed, the number of things they were doing. It's the most significant development in state building in our nation's history. And it occurred at mid 20th century. And it had effects not just for what policy looks like, but for uh, the two party system, for presidential power and for the health. That of sounds really smart. We want to explore that sounds this. really smart. It's the kind of thing that we like to do here. This is uh, Agua Media, by the way, and this is the Rick Sanchez News podcast. And we just want you to know that whether you get your podcast on Spotify or on Apple or wherever you get your podcast, we're here for you. This is very Latino. It's very real. We like to think we have smart conversations. Obviously, if you're listening to us on uh, YouTube, you can uh, subscribe. And we're glad you're there. And we'd love to have these conversations with you more often. And this conversation that we've had so far with uh, Professor William Howe, political science professor, University of Chicago, it's been a lot of fun. It's nice to talk to smart people, especially Midwesterners, okay? So there. <laughs> Hey, how about that? We will. I hope you you come back, but come during the summer if you need a little bit of relief from the from the summer heat in in, in Florida. We <laughs> Thanks so much. Well, after going, going to school at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, I wasn't too far from what you're offering me, so I'm a little bit used to it. Thanks so much again, <laughs> Professor. And uh, as we like to say here at the uh, end of our podcast, andale. Agua.